Lord, thank you for your word. The rock of Jesus Christ, of whom which we stand, the volume of the book is written of him and of you. And we thank you for that, Jesus. And so as we study your word, as we draw close to you, um, we get comfort. It's time of a refreshing that comes from the presence of you, and um, we just desperately need that. So we thank you for that this morning. That's a promise you've given us and a promise that we're going to cash in on this morning. Um, we love you and uh, pray for the kids as they're ministered to, that they'd receive your word with gladness and Teachers would be blessed and filled to overflowing with your Holy Spirit, that they might be refreshed, even as they're giving out what they've prepared. And I pray they'd enjoy the teaching time and the class time as much as the little kids are going to. So we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, The class we were going to have tonight is, we're we're canceling it for now. I've got to reschedule that. Things didn't work out like I thought they would. So sorry about that if you're planning on that, but we'll reschedule at a later date. Um, Oh, yeah. What? We did that last Monday. Yeah. Were you here? Okay, good. <laughs> David, we were here last Monday. <laughs> Another new ministry. <laughs> so, we'll talk about that later. The book of Chronicles is an amazing book. As we moved into to the second book, originally it was, it was one book. Um, but it's been broken up into two sections. And this is written from the perspective of a spiritual history. Um, written at the time uh, during the Babylonian captivity, the writer is trying to get across to those who are in captivity, we're heading back, and you best know how we ended up here in Babylon. Uh, Kings really goes over the political landscape of things, but for the nation of Israel, what they need to know is what spiritually happened in Israel that caused us to end up in Babylon. And so that's where this comes from, both books. Now, um, this second book picks up, Second Chronicles, picks up with Solomon being the, uh, the king. He's had the uh, scepter passed to him from his dad, David. Um, beautiful chapter last week of how they're building the temple and getting everything prepared for that. Um, but at that same time, they also handed the scepter to Solomon, and Solomon is going to start his ministry or start his reign here in chapter 1 of Second Chronicles. So... That's kind of where, where we are in, in, in everything. Um, this is very applicable to us. You're going to see a lot of similarities to our new covenant relationship with Jesus Christ as we're going to watch, as the writer's going to try to show, um, in this first chapter, we're going to see the first step towards decline. The first step towards decline. The first step in compromising in God's word, not being obedient. It isn't a big step, but it's a small compromise that leads to many other compromises which is going to lead them into the captivity of Babylon, a sin that God had to, uh, well, the 70-year captivity is a result of their continued compromise getting worse and worse every step. And so this, well, chronicles it. Verse 1, Now Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and exalted him exceedingly. And right off the bat, we see where the writer's trying to get across the spiritual side of things. Solomon was great because God was with him and God exalted him. Lest anybody forget and think that Solomon was just a really smart guy who knew how to game the system or knew how to do things. He just had such a dazzling intellect that it just blew everybody away and, well, of course he prospered. No, it's because God was with him. And that's the only reason he was able to do what he was able to do. And so he writes that right away. In 1 Samuel chapter uh, 
2, verses 6 through 8. Let me pull up my notes as I got sidetracked. It says this, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. We'll we'll hear that a lot in the next few weeks. God is in control and all. That's never been in doubt, I don't think. Um, Our concern, obviously, for our nation is for other things, not that God isn't in control anymore. He is. Um, But this is a reminder, this 1 Samuel, along with this first verse, that God is the one that's raised Solomon up with expectations of him obeying him. That's really important. With expectations of him obeying him. He's giving him a chance. He's giving him a shot. I expect you to obey me now that you're in this position, just like your father David did, just like you promised you would. I expect that from you because you said you would. And so Samuel reminds us that God is doing this. He raises up. David is a perfect example of that, coming from just being a a sheep herder, at least in his family, being raised up to be king was quite a step. It wasn't instantaneous, but boy, that path that God set David on was amazing and miraculous. And spiritual. I mean, it all started with, I've got to pick somebody out of these boys, and it ends up being the last one that anybody would have thought, who wasn't even brought in from the field yet. And God spoke to him and said, this is the guy. It's a spiritual calling that David had. We all have a spiritual calling. As Solomon is raised up by God, you've been raised up. I've been raised up by God. And I don't know what to, lo- to what level, how far he's going to take each and every one of us. But regardless, he, there's an expectation of obedience in following his word. And that he'll use us as long as he can use us. What was usable by David was his humility. What is usable by Solomon is his humility. That's something we all have to keep. That's the point of what the prayer was offered, that JC offered, was about communion, is that's a reminder of humility. Whether I've been saved a couple days or a couple weeks or decades I'm still saved and going to heaven because of what Christ did on the cross. I do this in remembrance of him, not because of any good works I've accomplished since. It's a reminder. It's a humbling moment. It should be anyway. You died. I didn't. Your grave or my grave, you took. Look, the song we sang, very important. Verse 2, And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the captains of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's houses. He goes and speaks to everybody, gets their understanding on things. I don't know what was said. We're we're not privy to the conversation. I always try to figure out what the conversation was about based off of what happens next, you know. And so whatever the conversation was, the next thing that happened, verse 3, then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon for the tabernacle of meeting with God was there which Moses, the servant of the Lord, had made in the wilderness. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kirjath-Jerim to the place David had prepared for it, where he had pitched a tent for it at Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar that um, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, he put before the tabernacle of the Lord. Solomon and the assembly sought him, sought God there. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, 
which was at the tabernacle of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. On that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, ask, what shall I give you? You're not mistaken. The tabernacle is spread out. Just, it's just like it's worded. You've got the tabernacle, the actual tent that we've talked about on Wednesday night in detail. It's over there. The Ark of the Covenant, when they got it, they didn't take it to the tabernacle. They brought it to Jerusalem and built kind of a fake tent over there. And that's where that is. And the bronze altar is in Jerusalem too. Now they're going to go worship over here at the tabernacle. So they're going to pick up that bronze altar, which we discussed in detail last Wednesday, just a few days ago. And they're going to take it to the tabernacle to go worship because you cannot approach God without going to that bronze table first, right? We all learned that last week. And so before we can even talk to God or inquire of God, we have to confront the bronze table, which represents our sin. And the sacrifice for our sin has to be placed on the altar, acknowledging our sin and raising it up to the Lord as a sweet-smelling aroma. And then we can go inquire of the Lord. That has to happen first. And so they do that. They get everything ready. They get it all set. So what was the conversation about? Based off of that, I don't know that it helped us all. Two things, probably. One of two things. Either they all agreed, hey, before we go any further, they're all in this great high spiritual place in their lives, rulers, elders, and this new king, that they decide, let's start this off right and go worship God with a thousand sacrifices, which, if you remember, again, from Wednesday nights, that's how they dedicated the temple or the tabernacle, with a thousand sacrifices. So there's precedence there, right? Or... <laughs> Solomon was so utterly confused after talking to all these guys. He said, that was a great conversation, but I still don't know what I'm supposed to do tomorrow. Let's go inquire of the Lord. It could have been either. We don't know. We know from the two historians that I had read, uh, one was Eusebius and the other was um, Josephus. Solomon's about 12 to 15 years old. I never thought he was that young, Honestly. I kind of figured when David was saying, my son is young and inexperienced, like he's 33 or something, going, come on, Dad, you know, I'm not that, not that young. I'm 33. You know? No, he really was young and inexperienced. He's 12 to 15 years old, so they say. We really don't have anything in Scripture that tells us. That's an awful young age to be given that kind of responsibility. So you can see why he went and talked to all these guys. Now, this is way more than what probably what Timothy had to deal with. Remember Timothy, that young pastor, don't let anybody despise your youth. He probably was 25, 30 years old when he was doing what he was doing. And the old guys with the long beards that have been around the block and have been in ministry for much longer, don't let them despise your youth. You can kind of see the hipster coming along, trying to get these old guys to move. This is way different. A 12 to 15 year old kid saying, hi, um, I'm your ruler. <laughs> oh, really? You know, kind of thing. Now, I don't know that that was the case, but I know that if I was 12 or 15 years old having a conversation, I am relying on them to put me at ease because I'm not at ease talking to you like this. I know I'm 12. I know I'm 15. I know I'm that young. I know you've been around. I know I don't know what I'm doing. I don't pretend to know what I'm doing. You can almost see the conversation going down. Maybe not out loud, but just sitting there as all the leaders, all the elders are looking at this, I mean, barely a teenager. What's our next move, uh, king? I don't know. I don't know. Mary was young. 
young virgin, the mother of Jesus. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys were young. David was young when he started walking with God. And I say that not because I'm saying, and see, God uses all the young people, so you old people better just hang it up. Not at all. He uses, (laughs) all the old people are like, well, okay, you know. No. He picked Moses, who was 80. The point of it is, he's not looking for age. I'm not looking for worldly experience, God says. I'm not looking for confidence. I'm not looking for gifts. I'm looking for humble, broken hearts, and it took 80 years for Moses to get one. And these young folks, Mary, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Solomon are all there. See, God can work with a humble heart. He can teach skills, right? I can give you gifts, but the humble heart is yours to decide upon. You can be proud or you can be humble. I can use the humble, but I can't use the proud. The humble I raise up, the proud I push down. And they're going to stay down until they're humble. It's not about age, and that's not why I bring it up. I bring it up because I don't want any young person here who's humble in heart and loves Jesus to think that you're not old enough to serve God or be used by him. You absolutely are if he chooses you. Your job is to stay humble. Any old person here who thinks they're past their prime and that the opportunities for ministry have long since well, been forgotten and in the past, and it's not even think about that anymore. You might just be getting started, provided you're in that humble place to be used by God. Solomon's there, and it shows by his prayer here. Verse 8 And Solomon said to God, You have shown great mercy. This is after God says, Ask anything you want from me, and I'll give it to you. Solomon's response to that night visit from the Lord. You have shown great mercy to David, my father, and have made me king in this in his place. Now, O Lord God, let your promise to David, my father, be established. For you have made me king over people like the dust of the earth and multitude. Now give me wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this great people of yours? From being in the presence of the Lord, from having this time of worship of a thousand bulls, which was extravagant for sure, One of the commentators said grotesque. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. It's extravagant worship. I don't think you can worship God enough, and there's a difference. We throw that word worship out there quite a bit, but I just want to be clear on what that means. That means bowing low in humility to a God who's superior to you, who has complete reign and control over your life, and you don't care what he does, just provided you you have a relationship with him. Worship him as a God, as the God, as the only God, as the creator of the universe who has your life in his hand, your very breath you breathe next, he gave to you. That's worship, not acknowledgement. The world acknowledges. Satan acknowledges, but he doesn't worship. Satan knows everything and more about God than we do. He's already been in his presence. And being in his presence, he still decided to walk away. That is, acknowledging and understanding and all that wisdom and and all the information, whatever he had, has, didn't cause him to worship. It's a different thing. We need to worship. So Solomon worships, and God says, I see that worship. I see that extravagant worship. I see your heart. 
The world may look just like the disciples did when the woman broke the alabaster flask over Jesus' head. That could have been spent better. That could have been done better. Why would you waste all that perfume? Don't you know you're just supposed to tap it and put it back here? Like, you know, whatever they said. He says, leave her alone. She's done this for my burial. You guys don't even get it, you know? Do you even worship? Bruh, you know? Worship. She was worshiping extravagant, too much, waste, efficiency. <laughs> Not when it comes to worshiping God. Worship him. Would you give me wisdom, God? 12 or 15, 12 to 15-year-old kid. I mean, well, I mean, a Bugatti would be nice. You don't know what Bugatti is, sorry. A uh, Ferrari would be nice. A Lamborghini would be nice. A new chariot would be nice. Is that better? You know? Nope. I'd like to start growing a beard. Everybody else has got a beard. I'm only 12. I don't have a beard. I don't even shave yet. You know? You make me look older. None of that. I want wisdom. I want knowledge. I need to know what it looks like to go in and to come out so that people can trust my leadership. I don't want to blow this. I don't want them to feel like they're wayward or lost because I'm in charge. I want them to know that I'm hearing from you and that I'm doing I want to be confident in your leadership through me. We have the same promises. I put myself in this guy's shoe. I'm like, what if God had come up to me in the middle of the night and said, whatever you want, J.D., you can have it. But man, would I have asked for wisdom? Probably not. Probably not. Start with a million dollars and see if that gets me wisdom. Let's go there, maybe. You know, Get me that nice new car and I'll drive people to church, maybe. I'd have worked something physical to be spiritual, more than likely. But we need to know from James chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, we have the exact same promise that Solomon got from the Lord. It's just an open-ended question for us as believers in Jesus Christ. This morning I have the same question that was asked of Solomon here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I can be as wise as I want to be. I just got to look at the right place and to the right person for it. Worldly knowledge is accessible. You can read books, you can gather, you can glean. I understand all that. But if I want heavenly wisdom, if I want spiritual wisdom, there's only one place I can go for that, and that's the Lord. And that's who I ask. Any one of us can have this moment right here, as Solomon did. And we just have to ask. We have not because we ask not. And when we ask, we ask amiss so we can spend it on our own pleasures, it says. Mm. Solomon wants wisdom to rule people so that they're taken care of. I want wisdom not to be the smartest guy in the room so that I don't lead anybody in the wrong direction or give bad advice. I want to give spiritual, heavenly advice. Verse 11, then God said to Solomon, because this was in your heart, not in your head, in your heart, and you have not asked riches or wealth or honor for your life, or for for the life of your enemies, nor have you asked long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. You bet. You got it. I don't know if it was instantaneous or not. You know, he walked away, just knowing, 
or whether it was gradual, or whether someone would ask him a question and he'd just get a word from the Lord and he'd answer according to, you know, I don't know if it was moment by moment or if he actually walked around and just said, by the way he writes Ecclesiastes, it seems like he just has it all the time. He's looking at ants. He's looking at, you know, everything earthly. And he just, botany, he's got that down. He's got, you know, animal husbandry down. He's got it all. He just got it. You've got it, he says. It's yours. Talk about information. Download, man. Wow. But he doesn't stop there. Because you've asked these things, you've got it. I will give you riches and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have had who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. All the things you didn't ask for, you're going to have too. Now, before you go there in your mind, you can't trick him. I really want wisdom. And you're looking around for the Ferrari kind of thing. I asked for the wisdom, you know. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows our motives behind our asking. That's, that's kind of the problem of having a God who's omnipotent. You know, can't fool him like you fool everybody else around you, you know. Oh, I just bought these roses because I love you. No, it's because I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you, you know. And you're going to be mad. <laughs> Buttering you up for the big ask. Nope. God knows. I'm going to give you all those things also. Matthew chapter 6, verse 32, same promise to us. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. A little bit of a twist, but it's the same exact thing as he said here in Second Chronicles chapter 1. You don't need to worry about all that. You ask for wisdom, you ask for knowledge, everything else will come by and by. It'll get there. I'll give you everything you need, and I won't give you anything that's going to cause you to walk away from me, you know, if that's your heart. And that was Solomon's heart. Now, this is going to go quick, but there are two paths I want to take at the end of this, so don't close your Bibles when I'm done reading this. That's either, Oh, he's done. That was fast. Verse 17. We got to go through some stuff before we actually close and have communion, okay? So be prepared. So Solomon came to Jerusalem from the high place that was at Gibeon, from before the tabernacle of meeting and reigned over Israel. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jer- in Jerusalem. Also, the king made silver and gold as common as uh, stones. And he made cedars as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowlands. And Solomon had horses, pay attention to this, imported from Egypt and Kiva. The king's merchants bought them in Kiva at the current price. They also acquired and imported from Egypt a chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. Thus, through their agents, they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Hmm. This is our first step that I promised you that leads to the Babylonian captivity. And it almost looks, it's almost, you can't even, it's imperceivable if you're not careful. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16, God specifically told any of the rulers that are going to rule, do not build up for yourself or 
gather to yourself or start hoarding chariots and horses. I don't want you doing that. Now, that's not what he's doing, is it? But I want you to see the progression here. It's a slippery slope to say, well, I'm not going to acquire these horses or chariots for the nation of Israel, but there's no, nothing wrong with trading in them. Buy it at wholesale, sell it to the Hittites at retail, make some money, let it pass through. Not keeping them, just moving on through. Okay. But then he starts to keep them. They're not all going through. This little bit of compromise over here by making it look like they need more money. Gold's like stones. Okay. So as far as making a little extra dough on the side by doing some used car sales, you know, not necessary. He begins to pull these through. In second or in First Kings chapter four, verse twenty-six, um, he warns them, and they begin to multiply the horses in service of his kingdom from the Egyptians. That's the second step. They begin to keep these horses. Fine, that's disobedient. You shouldn't do that. But now he's got a deal going with Egypt. It doesn't take long for him to begin to build this relationship with Pharaoh, and all of a sudden, Solomon marries his daughter. You're not supposed to marry foreign wives. You're not supposed to be doing that at all. Well, it's, you know, it's more of a, I mean, not really wife-wife. I mean, I know we're married and all, but she's like in the back room. She's over there. She's, it's more of a peace treaty kind of thing. There's a reason for it. I have a purpose for this. I'm not forsaking God. Don't be so uptight as the older guys are going, this isn't good. You know, no, 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 it's not about that. Not about that. Once he marries a foreign wife, Solomon's next step is to start marrying other foreign wives. That's step number three. Now he's got multiple wives that he's not supposed to have from other nations all over, and he's gathering all these other wives to himself. Step number four is all these wives want to go worship the gods where they came from, so he begins to build temples in Israel for each one of these foreign wives. But he's not going. I'm not, no, it's just, I would... Happy wife, happy life, Solomon says a thousand times. Got a lot of wives, a lot of temples. Until finally he finds himself going to worship with them in these foreign temples. And he's got to have that epiphany at some time when he's sitting there worshiping Moloch or Ashtoreth or whatever he's worshiping at that time. How in the world did I get in here? It started back with that horse deal you thought was no big deal, that compromise way, way back there. And now you find yourself worshiping foreign gods. You never thought it would lead to that. But there was a reason I wrote Deuteronomy 17, 16. Don't mess around with that stuff. Be content with what I've given you. Everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. You don't need to go anyplace else for that. It's just a class. It's like a spin class. Only we stretch a lot. Be careful. Small compromises end up being big sins. The writer here is trying to show the first step to those in Babylon of how they got there. Satan doesn't show up and say, hey, want to sin? No. I mean, we'd be, we're good at that, Right? Somebody runs up to you and says, hey, want to go rob a liquor store after church? I don't think so, no. You get that, right? 
Not hard to spot that stuff, but Satan's a little more subtle than that. He's a little more sneaky. Maybe you do something that gets you so far down into debt that you weren't supposed to get into, that you knew God hadn't led you into, that you get to this place, that place, till finally you find yourself with a mask over your face and a gun saying, how did I end up here robbing this poor person who is just an employee for seven bucks an hour and I'm taking their money and they're scared for their life? Just because of my, you know, every person in prison sitting in their prison cell after their sentence is sitting there going, how did this happen? I had no idea. I can't even go play basketball when I feel like it. I can't go fishing. I can't sleep when I want to. I can't eat when I want to. I can't go to the bathroom when I want to. How did I end up here in this prison? Compromise. Way, 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 way back there. The writer of Chronicles is warning them. When you go back and you have to go back, don't follow this path again. Now, the second path I want to take you through. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, speaking of the promises of God for us, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Same promise from Jesus for us today. Ask. 1 John 5, 14. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Oh. couple qualifiers in there for asking stuff from God. The first one, um, you got to knock first, you got to seek first, then you can ask. The second one is, I want my words to abide in you, and I want you to ask according to my will. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We know most of that verse, but we forget the middle part. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face... We skip to, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. But we missed a section. In between that, it says, and turn from their wicked ways. Just because a group of Christians get down on their knees and say, God, heal our land without turning from their wicked ways, doesn't mean he's going to answer that prayer. There are steps. You cannot bypass the bronze altar. And I have to acknowledge my sin as sin and turn from it and go the other way. I can't just ask God to bless me in my pig slop. The prodigal son is a, is a perfect picture for a reason. He left his dad. He left where he's supposed to be, where God's blessing was, where God had planted him, where God had raised him up. And he left and took the money with him and everything that his dad had given him, he takes with him and he finds himself in the slop with the pigs. And he doesn't ask God to heal his slop or heal his mud hole that he's in with the pigs, nor does God join him there. This prodigal son has to acknowledge that he's in the wrong place, needs to get his rear end out of that mud and walk back to where he's supposed to be. Probably rehearsing his speech all the way home. Uh, Dad, I was just wondering if, you know, who knows how many times he went through that but his beautiful father, who's scanning the horizon, looking for his son to return, runs to meet him. Speech doesn't even get onto his tongue. Puts the robe on him. Puts the ring on his hand. Goes and kills the fatted calf and tells everybody, my son has returned. The blessing is here. 
Chronicles is written for the Israelis to know you cannot be comfortable in Babylon. God will not bless Babylon. He's not going to make the mud hole and the pig slop smell any better. It is what it is. It's the world. It's what it has to offer. Enjoy. But if you want something other than this, it's over here. It's not here. You have to forsake that and go back to or go to for the first time the Lord. We have to. There are three opportunities for the nation of Israel that we're going to read. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah waves go back to Israel as soon as they're released. And there are actually some that don't go. They stay in Babylon knowing that they're people of God. They've gotten so comfortable. They've gamed the system. They've figured out what the Babylonians like. And they're just going to, well, it's a lot of work back there. A lot of rubble. A lot of building. A lot of starting from scratch. Everything I had back there is gone, and I've kind of built a little enterprise here. My little shop's doing well. Yeah, we compromise, and we're open on Saturdays, the Jew might say. But it's home. Be it ever so humble, and they don't go back. God cannot bless Babylon, nor will he. It will always be what it is. In their life and in my life and in your life, Babylon, the world is always, he's delivered us from Egypt. He wants to deliver them from Babylon. He wants to restore them, but it takes their decision and their heart to leave that and come back to where they're supposed to be. Yes, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. I don't know what's going to happen January 20th. I know we have an opportunity still to this day, based off of what we've done with the court system, with the Supreme Court, to remove the biggest stain of sin in our country. And I wonder what God would do for us if we actually followed through and repented of our sin and stopped. Maybe that's what this was all for to set up an opportunity for the nation of the United States of America to stop killing babies. To end the slaughter, to end the Holocaust, to end this. Then maybe he would heal our land. Then maybe we would permanently return to him, or at least for a couple decades anyway. January 20th aside, recount aside, whatever happens aside, Nothing's changed there. That sin, no matter who's in the White House, can still be erased and wiped clean. We'll see what happens. We'll see how repentant we really are. And I think we need to focus on that. That's really important. Now, not to leave in a, a downturn, Here's the beauty of the, of the warning, always with God. The beauty of the warning is this. You don't have to go down this road. The warning is so that you don't. And so every one of us this morning who have been warned by God's word, although very solemn and very serious, have an opportunity to say, ah, message received, sir. This week, I've got my eyes wide open for any kind of compromise that might come my way because I take heed to what I've heard on Sunday morning from God's Word, and I know it's coming. So I'm going to watch for it. Oh, here it comes. 
<laughs> no, no, no. Not painting my house white. No, that's leading. Who knows how subtle it'll be. It could be something as dumb as that. But Satan just tries to hook and then begin to reel in. But our eyes are all spiritually wide open, I hope, and ready for it. So that's the good news. That's the bright side. He's also given us hope. We have hope. Babylon was bad. That was 70 years of captivity under Babylon. By the time they're done, the king actually has a heart for the people and sends them home. This foreign king, this crazy non-worshipping king, you know, actually sends them back to go ahead and build their nation with such favor towards Nehemiah, who ends up being the cupbearer. I mean, just interesting. There's hope. So, we're going to hand out communion now. Because that's our first step in that prayer, isn't it? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, this is the most humbling thing we can do. It starts our mind and our hearts in the right direction. That I'm saved because of what Jesus has done for me. I'm no better. I'm no more saved. I'm no more righteous than I was when he first made me born again. When I first received him as my Savior. And we're reminded of that. That's what this is for. Thank you, David. So while these guys are handing out, I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians. Some of you understand why I said that. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians in verse 23 about what this we're doing right now, what it means, and why they're doing it. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, even this morning here at Calvary Chapel, Maryville, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. That's what we're doing with this. I am proclaiming what happened historically 2,000 plus years ago, that the death on the cross of Jesus Christ was sufficient for my sins. And as we eat this bread like they did back then, and we drink this cup like they did back then, we're proclaiming his death as the way of salvation. That's what we're doing. I'm saved this morning because of what Christ has done. Now, he doesn't stop teaching there. This is important. Therefore, since we're proclaiming the Lord's death, you're acknowledging that this bread and this cup represent the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus. When you eat it, don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner. Because if you do, you'll be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Why? And what's an unworthy manner? The unworthy manner is I know what it means. I don't apply it to my life. I don't take Jesus as the sacrifice or the propitiation for my sins. But I eat and drink anyway, knowing exactly what that means. In other words, I'm proclaiming the Lord's death, but not applying it to me. I bear my sin. I bear my guilt. Is what they're saying. 
So don't eat or drink in an unworthy manner, which means I don't believe in Jesus. You're basically renouncing Christ if you do that this morning. Don't do it. He doesn't stop there, though. If you're in that place where I've never accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior, I've never taken this communion or understood what it means until this morning, and I definitely don't want to take it without Christ, the next part's for you. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. Acknowledge your sin this morning before God. In your own heart, I don't need to know. Nobody needs to know. That's between you and your Savior. Come to that bronze altar that we've talked about. Come to the place of sacrifice. Come to the foot of the cross and say, it's because of my sin that you had to die on the cross. Because if you don't die and take my place on the cross and in the tomb, then I've got to go to the cross and die myself. I have to pay for these sins. and I don't want that. I receive your forgiveness for my sins this morning. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I worship you. My life is yours. Just like you gave your life for me, I give my life for you this morning. Now you can eat or drink in a worthy manner because you know what it means and you've applied it to your lives. And that's where we want to be this morning. Lord, we thank you for this. For those of us who are saints and have been saints for a long time, we thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and we acknowledge and proclaim your death this morning as we eat and drink together. For those of us who just came to know you this morning and have become saints and are now followers of you and are eager and excited to receive that forgiveness and wonder what that means for the rest of our lives. We thank you this morning for dying on the cross. Thank you for paying the penalty for all of my sins, past, present, and future. They've been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. You're never going to remember them again. The burden's been lifted. The guilt and the shame are gone, and I thank you for that this morning. Now I, I also want to give you my life. I want to live the rest of my life proclaiming this good news to everyone I know. Whenever I get a chance, whenever you lead me to do so, I want to proclaim your death also. and Let them know that they can have forgiveness like I have. We love you this morning. We thank you for your word, for your warning, for your care for us. Help us to watch for that compromise. In Jesus' name, amen. See. you're visiting, we break our glasses just because it represents a broken vessel. I, I, I learned it from a pastor's conference at the East Coast where um, the senior pastor out there in Philadelphia used to do that with the guys. I thought, that's good. I like that. So I, we have adopted that and we've brought that home. So it's not weird. We're just trying to show that the vessel which contains Christ, which is us, is broken and cracked and yet usable. Okay. One, two, three. <laughs>